House of the Dragon Season 1, Episode 8, The Lord of the Tides, is over. But we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. Hello, everybody. Mike Bloom here, barely holding my eye together, thanks to my golden Phantom of the Opera PSR mask, which may be available in the merch store sooner rather than later, to break down the anti-penultimate, or perhaps uncle-penultimate, considering what happens to an uncle in particular in this episode of House of the Dragon. Now, unfortunately, Grace Leader is not able to join us for the recap this week uh, because she is celebrating Canadian Thanksgiving. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to the Starks of the world, uh, our neighbors to the north in a manner of speaking. She is sitting down to have a family dinner, assumingly uh, with a little bit less violence and awkward toasts than what happened at the dinner table this particular week. But who's to say? But of course, I am surrounded by a really fantastic group of podcasters ready to talk about House of the Dragon and Westeros in general. So I will uh, raise my glass first to the man who always has his eye on a mystery, even if that eye may be non-existent in his head during after years and years and years. It is, of course, the great DJ LaBelle Klein, or as he is now known as Lord Troy. How are you doing, Troy? Breathes heavily. Breathes heavily i'm doing really well mike thanks for having me on the podcast of course uh thank you for signifying that the stranger things subtitles have made their way into house of the dragon as long as I, look, no, like... I didn't i thought about actually coming in and breathing heavily i thought that might be a bit too strong of a of a sound you know we got people we're in their ears we're in their heads right now so we got to bring some energy and uh, i'll vocalize the subtitles at least and I do think that there would be a non-zero chance that people thought we may have brought a dying man onto our podcast to really simulate. Like, <laughs> Who knows? Last, I might be. I don't know. I do have two good eyes for now. For now. We'll see. Again, I don't know how long this podcast will be. But of course, we are not alone here. I will again raise my glass to someone who is the queen of fan fiction, uh, regent of Harry Potter costumes. The Dale of River sends their envoy, the forever queen of Driftmark. May her title never be challenged. The great Mary Kukowski. Mary, how are you? I'm doing great. You know, this show has really got my goat this week, or maybe my goose, or my roast duck, or my pig, pig. or my tongue. Might have gotten my tongue. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I almost had to bang on the table there when you just said, when, uh, when you just said that, that that might be a little too strong <laughs> for you to do the breathing, man. Oh, how dare you? How dare you make such accusations about I our know. listeners? Yeah, that's I nearly that's, lost my head here. That's why <laughs> we're not recording in person. Uh, I've learned various times of talking about Game of Thrones. Never say to, to things to people in person. Even if you don't, sometimes assassins get sent after you. But especially, I don't want Aemond glaring at me. Uh, he, he has half the assets to do so, but almost double the penetration when it comes to his stare. We're going to talk about the family reunion. Uh, six years, six plus years, I would say at least have passed yet another time jump this is sort of like the pokemon third stage evolution of house of the dragon season one at this point i'm gonna imagine we're staying here for the last little bit but before we get into the lord of the tides i want to change tides here again this is the first time we're having either one of you on to talk about not only house of the dragon but i believe anything game of thrones in general i don't know troy if you had contributed anything to you know uh back during the throne rewards when those song parodies were a thing uh but i i'd love to hear from you what is your origin story with the world of westeros and game of thrones 
And how so far, eight episodes in, has House of the Dragon been comparing? Wow. Well, I've been thinking about how I would frame my experience with Game of Thrones and, and House of the Dragon. And I don't think there's any other way to put it then I am a filthy, filthy casual, Mike. <laughs> I watched the TV shows when they came on HBO, watched it uh, with great interest, had no clue what a Red Wedding was, had no clue mm. who any of these characters were, had not read a single book, and, and endured through the entire series uh, with great interest uh, up until it wasn't so great. And have now come to House of the Dragon, I would say, with similar interest but lowered expectations and also absolutely no background knowledge whatsoever. And so I would say to your second question of how I've enjoyed it so far, it's great. It's fine. Is it perfect? Is it amazing television that stands up there with latter seasons of Game of Thrones before it really tanks? No, not, not necessarily. But I'm not mad at it. I'm happy with it. I'm not taking it overly seriously, although we might over the next hour, hour and a half, who knows? Uh, but yeah, all in all, filthy casual, give me my free fantasy TV. I am enjoying it. Mary, are you residing in the casual flea bottom with Troy? How filthy are you at this point? No, I think I'm a little, a little bit higher up. I'd say I'm one of those like mid families, you know, I might be like, like, I'm not a Stark, but I might be a car Stark, right? Like mm. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a bannerman. I'm in it, but I don't know if I'm like super fan could name all the characters. Um, yeah, I got into game of Thrones. I think it was when most people did, which was right after the red wedding when everyone was like, okay, this show is happening. Let me show all my friends. And, uh, yeah, I was, I was lucky because that I got in then because I was, think like fresh out of high school and I was at that perfect age where my mom walked in and was like what are you watching there are a lot of butts and a lot of death and I'm like hey 18 you can't tell me what I can watch anymore so wow such like an Aegon like defense about you right of like don't tell me what I can't do mom yeah don't tell me did so, your mom yeah. walk in and smack you across the face no, nah, she didn't. She didn't say you are no daughter of mine. No, <laughs> not at all. Actually, yeah. So I, I got into the show at that point and watched most of it uh, back on DVD before I got to college where somebody, you know, the one person has an HBO account and everyone crowds in the room and watches that. Um, but yeah, I got to the point where my mom visited me in college once and I was like, all right, you're getting in. You're watching Game of Thrones. We're going to do that. And we were watching it in like a... <laughs> some sort of conference room in my dorm that had like glass walls and it wasn't until you know the end of the first episode that we realized like hmm we're watching this on a projector screen right in front of all these glass walls of anybody who could be walking by but uh yeah no hey you know what game of thrones is great and i i don't know at what point i went back and read the books but i definitely i went back i read all the books in there but not the one that House of the Dragon is based mm -hmm. off of. So I'm coming into this fresh. Um, I, I'm probably rare in that I, I disliked the end of Game of Thrones like everyone else did the show, but it did not ruin the show for me in the slightest. And so I was 100% happy to come back and I will probably do a Game of Thrones rewatch the second this ends. So yeah, getting in. And, and so far, I, I like House of the Dragon a lot. Like this, these episodes have been all very intriguing. I think... There might be one, like I think the second episode was a little slow for me. But other than that, all the other ones have been pretty good. So I'm hanging in there. 
this was a really interesting episode because we really come down from all the climactic action from episode seven, right? Which I talked about last week. I think really the climax of the season so far was this standoff in Driftmark, right? Allison essentially breaking bad, having her meltdown, leading to her slashing Rhaenyra. And as Rhaenyra points out, like now everyone sees you for who you are. And it's interesting that again, we have another time jump here between episodes, not only to age up the children to now perhaps around the age that Mary inappropriately uh, had her mom barging in on her watching Game of Thrones. But I think as well to like put everyone in a, in a time frame where people can't be like, no, not the kids. Like people are now culpable at least somewhat for their own actions. So it's, it's always going to be a tough act to follow in what I thought was the strongest episode. Sorry, Luke and Jace for that word again of the series so far. So I'll admit the the first part of this episode for me, I was a little bit like, okay, I'm getting it. You know, I'm I'm it's yet another big time jump. So I'm still trying to get settled into like, okay, what's happening now? What are all the relationships? What's happened in the time in between? You know, considering that we start the episode right by being like, oh yeah, the sea snake, he's not on the show anymore. Uh, he's probably dying. He's gonna be dead. So yeah, he's not gonna be here anymore. It, it's a wild thing to get used to. But what I will say is, not only did the second half of the episode really nailed things home for me i think in retrospect and we're recording this right after the episode aired so i haven't gotten the opportunity to watch it for a second time but i do wonder if you watch it through the eyes or i the entire time of the last day of viserys targaryen's life i think that really paints the episode an entirely different hue uh where obviously that's going to be the large focus of the end of course leading to his death scene but I really do feel like, Troy, that this episode was so emblematic of everything we knew about Viserys' character, both good and bad. Yeah, I think you're right, Mike. I, I think, you know, you you kind of, maybe for those fans who are watching and have either read along or certainly are following the, the production story behind House of the Dragon, you maybe come in with certain expectations, certain assumptions about what this episode or future episodes might be for the filthy casuals and flea bottom like myself who have absolutely no knowledge whatsoever the the most salient question coming into ep in the episode for the last like three or four is like is the king still alive is he how how is he still alive and we, it's like we jump ahead six years and i'm thinking to myself okay all right he's gone now right like now we're gonna see what happens when he's gone but no of course and i actually think it's a quite a good choice here which is the entire season the entire series is built upon this fundamental question of what happens when the king dies so why not lengthen that out for as long as humanly possible and boy does it feel like as long as humanly possible i think the other thing this episode really does is it cements Viserys as a king who was a man who was very flawed mm. and the fundamental notion of if you don't set things right before you're beyond the capacity to do so it doesn't matter how much you try and will yourself up a set of stairs or try and have a, a nice family dinner it's all going to fall apart the second that you leave the room and I loved that they were able to not only write a story about that, but to also stage that quite literally. Uh, and yes, eventually my question got answered, which is, is the king going to die? Yes, yes, finally. Okay, yes. Now let's see what happens. What I thought was so interesting about this episode and the previous episode, so Evans uh, uh, 7 and 8 together, is 
the slight um, mix up of my expectations. I think I had been mm. thinking we were going to get to this point where the sort of battle lines were going to be these really strong uh, high yeah, towers, again. <laughs> high towers versus versus uh, Rhaenyra and Damon's side, and you know greens versus blacks and all that. And I, I'm sure that we're still going to get that in the following episodes. But I think that that unlike Game of Thrones, where you have the like quote unquote adult characters scheming and plotting, and you know I, there's been a little bit of that with with Otto. There's been times where it's like ah, uh, you know, he's telling his daughter like I'm glad that you have some uh, <laughs> some will to win this and to fight. But I I think the thing about Game of Thrones that really like got people on the edge of their seat mad and had those characters that they hated were the Joffreys of the world, the, the little sniveling kids who can't be reasoned with. Like a lot of the mm. sort of adult bad guys or adversaries uh, were basing a lot of their, whether it be chaos or political moves in some sort of logic or what, I mean, even if, even if it's Cersei just saying like, I'm doing this for my house, I don't care what bad things happen. I'm doing this for my kids. Um, like there's that level, but then with, with Otto and Allison, it's kind of like, you know, they've got, they've got logic behind them. They've got reason. Now they've got the seven behind them, but man, <laughs> I just hate that little Eamon kid so much. And that's where, and that's where I'm at. It's like, it's Allison's kids that are the ones who, despite what their parents might tell them, despite like the, you know, the reading of the room, like, Hey, we're all, we're all being friends here. We're giving toasts. They're the ones who are going to tip the scales over. And I think that that's really where like the battle is going to, start of the of the fans viewing of like which side you're on mm. i think it, like if, if they had been just sort of happy uh you know children along the sides that we've seen so far with the uh rhaenyra's children i think this would be a, it would be a lot easier to root for allison's side but when you've got that oh <laughs> those little blonde headed kids really hate them really i mean do. understandable considering that and you know a bit of a content warning i suppose for this episode considering that we find out in this episode that you know one of them has sadomasochist violent tendencies and the other one is a rapist uh yep. yeah uh, yeah I, I know that people said last week when it comes to the greens versus the blacks they're like yeah well the kids in the greens are more interesting yeah, maybe in the middle stage, because in the later stage, I kind of want to uh, use, you know, a non-evolving stone and, like, send these things back to stage two. I do not like older Aegon and Aemon, and I think that's the point. And and I think that's the difference also where, like, I'm saying that you can you can kind of root for Alicent because, yeah. I mean, you can see in the scene where she's talking to Diana, like, she is heartbroken over the situation. She does bring up the question of, like, I'm worried about what people are going to think about this. But Cersei would be like, well, Diana, this really stinks that you're in this position. We're going to have to kill you now. And, you know, Allison doesn't do that. I am not saying that you should just pay them off for compensation and give them a tea. That's not great, but it, it's it's a lot more morally gray. And you can see on Allison's face the like, uh, how she's broken up over this. And and I think that also is very similar to, I disagreed with almost every podcaster I heard, everything I read about way back when, uh, when um, Harwin Strong was killed. 
I really thought that she was like, oh, I did not want this to happen. I did not want the house to be burned down. I I thought she was genuinely like, "Uh uh-oh, I have put myself in bed with a snake and now I have a lot of sins. And I I feel like that's also probably why she's leaned into this sort of like more religious element of like, I need something to, to cleanse me because I've got a lot of guilt. Well, I think this is a good example of what makes Allison a very good character in mm-hmm. this season. Because during that conversation with Diana, I'm sitting there thinking, she could kill this girl. Mm-hmm. She is. It is perfectly within this character's capability, as we've seen her evolve over the course of the season, for her to say, like, look, it pains me deeply. I'm going to hug you. I'm going to cry. But also, I got to do what I got to do for my house. And at the same point, I agree with you. I agree with your read that like she she is not she does not wish to be that person. And so I find that to be very compelling. And I also find it interesting to kind of figure out it creates an an immense amount of tension in each one of these scenes that she's in, Mike, to say, okay, we know what she fears. She fears her children being killed in this quest for the throne. And she fears um you know basically her family falling apart ultimately but uh what is she willing to do to avoid that and to make good things happen for her her family and her husband to some extent i i think we'll find out but um we're still each episode almost seems like she is stepping past the line and then coming back and then past the line and Mm -hmm. coming back and i find that a fascinating little dance and even in this episode it it's it started to seem like she was starting to question whether or not Egan should rule like this guy's horrible and and i think that she's she really battles with that of like wanting her her children to to be alive and then also questioning but am i going about this the right way yeah, I think the thing about me with Allison that really, again, came to the forefront with this this extended monologue she had with Blade in hand at, in last episode, right, is like, and Rhaenyra, in my opinion, I think, is going to sincerely toast this to her near the end of the episode at the dinner, which is like, you have remained so steadfast and loyal to your husband. And that is her thing. And I think that's why she was so much in opposition to Rhaenyra for so long and may probably now have those fires reinvigorated based on what happened at the end of this episode. But this idea of like the things that I've had to do, the things that I've had to put up with in order to remain loyal to the bonds that I made, the promises I made, et cetera, et cetera. You get to flit about and do whatever you want and have everybody be able to kiss your butt because the King has so much favor for you. You know, you are his heir apparent. And I think, again, that frustration hits a very tense boiling point in the last episode. And so, yeah, I do feel like she is really she is really led just by this idea of kind of sticking to those rules. I totally agree with you, Mary. It was my reading as well that, like, I think she had a horror struck. And, like, I don't think she's this big uh, Tony Soprano mob boss at arranging for a hit on the Strong family. I think it's the strangers on a train thing where she threw out this willy nilly thing. And Larry Strong was like, oh, okay, two birds with one stone, you say, and then just took things completely far. And so I, I think, you know, the, the thing about this, this show as well that I find really invigorating, but also sometimes frustrating is like every character kind of has a turn at the bad ball of being the worst character on the show. And Allison kind of had that last episode, but then mm-hmm. she bounces it to her children for this episode. 
I do think it, it wasn't necessarily like a bounce back week for Allison by any course, but I do think the Allison we see six years later, I think is very much fueled by what ends up happening to her at Driftmark. I think uh, you talk about the Lara stuff, but I think that meltdown is very much the reason why she ends up going into, you know, becoming a devout member of the seven. How often do we talk about people finding religion and becoming devout after, you know, undergoing certain tragedies or certain breakdowns in their own lives? I think she is part and parcel with that. And it's a very different type of Allison. She is is warming over, at least again, until that final scene. I don't want to put the uh, the cart before the horse too much, at least not before we put, could, uh, cut the horse's head off. Let's start going through this episode because, yeah, we don't start near King's Landing. Uh, we sort of ended the episode in Driftmark, and we still are in Driftmark. And again, we get a, a place setting, essentially. Sea Snake not doing entirely well. He's got some sort of blood fever. Uh, somehow the Triarchy returned uh, off screen, I suppose. Crab Feeder 2.0 is worse, as oftentimes the sequel is. Uh, Corliss got attacked, and essentially Corliss's brother, Vaymond, not to be confused with Damon or Amond, Vaymond with a V, as in very likely to die soon, uh, aka Corliss's brother, says, Okay, I know that he said that Luke, who is the child of Rhaenyra and Lenor, quote unquote, should be sitting on the Driftmark throne. It should be me. That's a bastard child. You know it. We all know it. I'm going to go ask for the, the queen's slash king's, but essentially queen's favor for that. Now, Troy, getting your filthy casual opinion on this, when we do things like the triarchy and this Driftmark stuff, stuff that takes place inherently outside of what I would say are our core four characters, mm -hmm. is this stuff still like buoying your attention? Or are you saying like, get to King's Landing, I want to see some more good stuff? Uh, Mike, I took exactly two notes on this scene. Uh, one of them is Vayman, brother of Snee Snake, to remind me what his name was. And the other is that Driftwood throne is badass. That's literally about as much as I am like, I, I understand I follow the story for sake of the narrative and, oh, okay, this is, we've created a scenario that is going to force the question of the children's parentage and is going to bring it to court. Uh, and so I understand that, but do I, do I like resonate with the triarchy and who sits on the Driftwood throne and Driftmark and all that? Not so much, right? I, I think the part of what I love about House of the Dragon uh, or have really enjoyed about it, I loved where we started in episode one. I love the king and the small council. I love the little infighting. I, To me, the things that make the Game of Thrones world so fascinating is the people and what they're willing to do in order to amass and maintain power. I could do without the wars. I could do without the dragons. I know that's so mm. awful to say. But in as much as this became part of a broader kind of chess game around how to curry the favor of the queen and ultimately the king, uh, I, I found it a, a great start uh, and very fascinating. But all of the kind of... Um, trying to hold the lands and the the wars of it all i still find a little difficult to grasp onto i don't know mary if like your your reading of things has made it easier to um to have those things settle with you or uh if you're like me where it's really just uh, about the the intrigue of this family that just can't seem to hold itself together 
Yeah, I, I kind of agree with both. Like, I think the thing I actually fell in love with first was the world and then the the political dealings. Uh, yeah, I'm putting dragons down there in, like, fifth or sixth place. Wow, such a hot take. Uh, the dragons are fine. Like, I, you know, I'm not like a, you know, like a dragon girl personally. Like, they're, they're, you know, it's definitely similar. My um, little dragon, my little dragon. <laughs> yeah. Like, they're, they're, they're cool. But, like, uh, you know, I, I, I like the dragons when they're being used for, plot reasons like if they're like hey we've got a dragon therefore we can go fly over there and burn that city down okay i understand that's useful but just like soaring scenes of people riding dragons it's it's fine i'm gonna tune it out everyone keeps talking about how unique and different the dragons all look from each other i besides the one with the long neck i'm like that's that's the gray (laughs) one that's the red one that's the green one. And I, I don't really notice anything other than that. But like I said, dragon's just not my thing. If it's your thing, that's great. That's awesome. But not my thing. Uh, I actually, all the Driftmark stuff from this episode fit in my head more so as like from a, 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 a movie or TV perspective, like analyzing, okay, this is going to be the scene where we get the setup for what's what's important this episode like oh Mm. this is the scene where we introduce the conflict and there's been a couple times uh in house of the dragon so far where it's like all right first scene wherever we are it's a walk and talk with two people about some political thing that's gonna be the reason for the episode and and that's kind of where i was at with that um i did find it interesting the westeros wing yeah yes exactly exactly uh i did find it interesting there were a couple notes there like that that Bela is being um uh she's what the ward of Rhaenys at the moment yeah she's so it seems like it, yeah in the aftermath of everything so remember that Damon and Lena the late Lena had twin daughters one of them is at Driftmark we see in them in the opening scene the other one is the ward of of uh of Rhaenyra and so uh and Rhaenyra takes that as a sign of like See, Allison, where she's fine with us, you know. She yeah. made she made one of your daughters, Damon. Because remember your daughters. Remember that your da- like. Uh, I think it's Lena ends up writing Damon. I'm like, oh yeah, like he just left his daughter behind to go marry his niece. Yeah, I wasn't sure which direction that was going. Was it like they had both the daughters and then they sent one sort of in good faith to Rhaenys to be like, you can, yeah. you can have one granddaughter for a little while if you don't kill us and get mad at us. And that's <laughs> textbook Westeros. Again, I've been yeah. reading through the, the the fire and blood and I haven't gotten to the stuff that this material is based on, but like that is very much the transactional nature, right? Of like, okay, you have five children. Uh, if you send two of your children to King's Landing and one of them to Old Town to study to become a maester, then I'll accept this deal. Uh, unfortunately, children are treated as livestock for quite some time I, until they until they can hold a sword. And I always think of that, like the line that's always very clear is the you know episode one. I've got a son. You've got a daughter. Let's bond our houses. You know, uh, from Bobby B. And here. It's just constant. Like, I, I wish I had could keep score of the number of times people are like, well, it, everything will be fine. Our kids will marry each other. Just marry Problem him. solved. Just, just, <laughs> I, wish, I, I wish that I could, like, any problem I get in, in the world, I could just be like, uh, your kids, my kids, let's just make it done. I don't have Perfect. kids yet, but, like, I promise you, yeah. I'll rumple stiltskin this, mm-hmm. and we'll just make all of our problems go away. 
It's like the the two reasons to have kids in Westeros. Number one, you got to have an heir, got to pass things yep. down. Number mm-hmm. two, got to have some kind of bargaining chip in case you ever need to make good with another house. Yeah, I just have a second kid and name get out of jail free. Yeah. I mean, no wonder as we come to Dragonstone here, I would say Damon and Rhaenyra have kept busy by getting busy, perhaps. Uh, so we have, yeah. you know, the older versions of Jace and Luke. We have a uh, definitely older, but still young version of Joffrey, which was the baby that started off, right, the very first scene of the first time jump that we got. And we'll find out later that it seems like there are twins or at least two sons fairly close in age. Cannot doubt the lineage because that hair is as yellow as corn uh, of of another Aegon and Viserys. And it seems like, Mary, from what Damon implies and the, at the end of their sort of interaction here, another one on the way. We get like the, the yeah. very contemplative got, stomach touch. some body touching. Yeah. yeah. Anytime someone does a little brush of the stomach, I'm like, oh, there's that's baby. Got a baby in there cooking away. Uh, yeah, I think that... Um, th- I was almost let down. I don't know if let down is the right word when they did the time jump initially, because I think a lot of people watched the first couple episodes and thought that Rhaenyra was going to be sort of an Arya Stark type of like, no, I'm not going to have kids. I'm not going to do the battlefield of motherhood thing. And then it's like, what are you on child nine at this point? I guess not. No, probably like six, six. I was including Damon's daughters for some reason in that. Count. It's adopted, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, mom, right. I'm just like, I mean, good for her, but but you've been, yeah, you've been really fighting that battle. And at this point, it's like you get one child not positioned correctly, and you better be calling your dragon. So, I don't know how to follow that, Mary. I mean, you, (laughs) you, 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 but but I, I think how I will follow that is to say you have perfectly laid out the stakes of. I, I hate to say this, but like being a woman in George R. R. Martin's Westeros and in this world, and it doesn't matter whether you are heir to the throne or whether you are uh, the princess Rhaenys who should be on the throne. The truth is that like the the future path, at least, you know, until we get to 200 years later in the Arya Starks of the world, your path is is bent against uh, whatever you may wish. And um, it, it's one of the kind of dark and sad parts of this world. It's one of the things that makes it really, I think, difficult to enjoy uh, at some level. I mean, also, you got a niece and her uncle who, like, they're doing a really good job of making this seem like a badass loving couple. But like, then you remember it's a niece and an uncle and you're like, ah, I'm not supposed, I don't, I don't like this, but you're all are trying really hard to make them seem like a real cool power couple. And I'm on the struggle bus, Mike. I really don't know how I'm supposed to feel about this. Yeah. I mean, the time jump, I think uh, accomplished a number of certain tasks. And one of them I think is to, make that pairing more digestible because at the end of the day it's a groomer and his groomee essentially that end up getting married here and it seems like things are hunky-dory at the moment I talked about this last week with Grace that like I do inevitably feel like something is going to fall apart because I Rhaenyra talks with Damon right about like oh we're so similar we're we're both fire we have to burn and consume what's around us and it's like yeah, two fires put together does not usually help the fire abate. Usually it just makes the fire bigger. And I think that's going to be a problem later on. Though I will say Damon is, you know, 
gonna gonna be with one large exception fairly cordial uh during his time in king's landing here it is not helped by the fact that when they arrive uh they can't necessarily say i like what you've done with the place first off they're not even greeted by al Alison herself not even graham mctavish is there instead it's just this rando guy who this random lord who ends up showing up and by the time they they check out the decor it has become much more demure in the inside the episode they compared it to a monastery which again i think invokes that very conservative religious ideology that then also as we cut from you know the points of the seven above the iron throne to the same sigil around Allison's neck, Mary, very much indicates what Veyman implies in the opening scene, which is like, yeah, this is pretty much Allison and Otto running things in King's Landing. Yeah, it it definitely reminds you of some uh, mix-ups that the, uh, <laughs> you know, between church and state, we should say, that we had mm. in Game of Thrones, right? Uh, and how that didn't always end super great. Um, it, at this point, I really felt like this was a almost like a crutch, uh, not the crutch that Viserys is using, but a, a crutch for Allison to to lean onto uh, because of because of her past actions like i think i think that the, the the burning of the strong family um the hurting rhaenyra and her outburst in the previous episode and then on top of like i think that this sort of idea of having the seven as something that she can kind of lean on um helps with that it's also a very like new gods kind of way versus the targaryen old school traditions of old valyria um so that there's like a difference there of her trying to kind of bring her own thing to the table but i i also think it's this idea that like if you can't it, viserys is in poor health and if you can't have him just kind of unilaterally stating whatever he wants to happen because he's the king you need something else to at least help you make base your decisions on and if uh if religion is going to be that thing for her um i i would be really curious to know if there was any influence from Otto on that um i think that was probably my biggest letdown with the episode was we did not get almost anything from him in the whole episode of to show what like, what his perspective has been at this point. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree, Troy. I think that what surprised me a lot was between last episode and this one, right? Like, when Otto comes back, I was definitely surprised, considering, again, how unceremoniously he got kicked out. And definitely a questionable choice on Viserys' part. Like, we'll just bring back the last guy. He didn't do that bad stuff. But I wonder if he truly has come back a bit castrated of he doesn't really seem to be the one making decisions. The most power he has is him sitting on the Iron Throne. I don't know if it's him just saying, uh, Allison can take, take care of this. I taught her well. If it's perhaps age setting in upon him. But I totally agree with Mary, and I know you do as well, that like the definite shift down from Otto's character since his first firing is surprising. Well, I'll, I'll have more more opinions on Otto, I think, when we get to the throne room scene here. Um, I, I think to, you know, step back briefly to our Extreme Makeover uh, King's Landing edition. Move that dragon! <laughs> That's exactly. I'm like, this is the worst Trading Spaces episode ever. Um I, I 
I am fascinated to know, and I wish we had seen Allison's Allison's conversion. Like what what really is behind that? Because I think we saw in the original Game of Thrones the way in which the church is also a political actor. The church mm-hmm. can also be involved in the game. And right now, all we've seen, and I think probably that's all we're gonna get is the symbol the symbol of the seven right and uh that is meant to be a placeholder for allison's uh search for something search for meaning search for purpose and many of much of that's understandable right you you are super duper lonely girl like you your husband is is in bed you have no friends uh, you've expressed as much and you are left to try and figure out how to rule i can understand turning to something else uh, I think you hit the the na- nail on the head or the, um, oh gosh, there's all kinds of imagery that I'm not even going to repeat here based <laughs> on this last episode, but I'm dying to know how Otto feels about that, right? Because I think if religion takes power within Allison, uh, then some element of her duty as as a high tower, some element there is um, has to have given up uh, some aspect of her being and i think we still see uh you know as we get later and later into the episode maybe the reason we don't see Otto is an intentional choice is to really cement allison as guess what she is the one in power and so he has to acquiesce even to her mike and i um i wonder like are we gonna see a resurgence of him later on i'm not sure i would love to to see more of him Well, we're certainly going to see a lot of Viserys in this episode. Let's go into his chambers. And yeah, we, we've all made jokes both on and off mic, right? Of like, oh, Viserys looks this bad now. Is it just going to be a big pile of goo with strands of hair by the time we cut forward again? I mean, not terribly not off very the far mark. Off. There's a scene in Little Nicky, the hit Adam Sandler film, uh, where the, the whole plot is that... <laughs> Harvey Keitel, who plays the devil, is slowly falling apart. And at one point, it's just a mouth held up by two hands. And, like, it, Viserys is essentially that. I give so many roses and favors to Patty Considine in this episode. Just everything he has to do, it must be, ironically enough, so exhausting <laughs> to have played how exhausted he was, right? To, like, exert the effort to be so frail to be so weak, to be so out of it for, like, the first portion of the episode, right? Like, Theoden in the first part of the two towers, just kind of sitting there decrepit. Uh, I thought he did such a fantastic job in this episode, particularly with his death scene, which I, I thought was stunning, which we'll get to later. But here it is. It is haggard troy and we haven't even gotten to when he takes the mask off no we haven't i wrote down the crypt keeper with frills right that is <laughs> that is what i mean it's a terrifying sight uh even with the eye and the face covered up uh i was not prepared for it i did not enjoy it but i certainly respected the performance and i think in as much as this became uh, setting the tone for the rest of the episode uh, boy howdy did it ever and uh, even just the ways in which uh, Rhaenyra and Damon had to approach the bed of, of an unfamiliar man at this point uh, was a fascinating again a, a little dance a little walk of both uh, 
pomp and and kind of attempting to follow some sort of protocol with also the knowledge that like this is a daughter probably seeing her father very close to the last time and that has its own weight to it mary so i i was terrified i, I don't enjoy seeing bodies like that but i was intrigued by the opportunities that kind of came out of it yeah so in in the after the episode portion they talked about a lot of the scenes in this episode being basically at someone's bedside in hospice like mm. it's seeing someone's final days the conversation you have and if you've ever been in that position um and i know i have uh there's there's so much going on because there's the air of I want to speak gently to this person. I don't want to upset them. I want to them to instill any last bits of advice they can give me. And sometimes you might have things like, oh, no, I need you to help me figure out all the important logistical details of how to continue running my life if, if I'm your your spouse or your child or whatever. But in this show, it's like, yeah, also, we really need a lot of answers because there's some really big political questions going on that we, you know, might need your influence on. And for especially for Rhaenyra and Damon, like, Viserys is their biggest asset they have at this point is that they still have a king who's on their side for a very short while longer. And um, that was an also where some of my expectations were subverted a little bit in this episode was... I half expected this episode to start and say, he's dead. Uh, the high towers have been running things. Not only are there seven pointed stars everywhere, but they've changed everything and they are completely locked in running whatever. And of course, Rhaenyra and Damon are not going to be able to, uh, you know, pitch their side, petition their side for anything. The fact that he was still alive. And as we'll see in a few scenes, somewhat coherent in certain areas, that was shocking to me. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I would love to know if how much of the look was practical and how much was CGI because the like just gaping holes on his back, on his face, everywhere, the way his mouth was being held sort of lopsidedly open, like that was um, hard to look at, but very impressive from a, a visual perspective. I would imagine basically everything but the eye proper was practical. I would hope wow. so, at least, uh, because... I mean, listen, it's it's a high-budget show, but I would feel also from an actor's perspective, like, that weight you put on, I think, also helps inform what you do. How, how many dragons, Mike? Like, like, that body, how many dragons did that cost? Is that, like, the equivalent of, like, a a, a, a dragon and a half, that eye and gaping hole? Or is that, like, yeah. a one, one-fifth a dragon? It's a BMW. It's a body-made wolf. Uh, just <laughs> it's not looking good. I, I really love the points that you brought up, Mary, in the comparison to hospice care. And I will say, like, I think Rhaenyra obviously had a huge reaction to it. I think what struck me most was the Damon reaction. Mm -hmm. Because unlike Rhaenyra and Viserys, who, like, he has almost always been in her corner. And even the times that he wasn't briefly, he'd be like, ah, it's okay, Rhaenyra, I still support you at the end of the day. Him and Damon have been fighting like brothers. He's been exiled, then brought back, then exiled, then offered to get brought back. Uh, and so it's it's a very contemptuous relationship. And I just feel like the way that Matt Smith played it, uh, I know that Grace and I talked about this last week of like, you know, has uh, Damon's time in the East possibly softened him a bit from like the young braggadocious hot start that he was in the first part of this season. And I just think 
the way that he regarded him and the way that he looked at him with like pity but also sadness at the same time it is very comparable right to like visiting your relatives and also the fact that assumingly they have not seen him they went straight to dragonstone after everything that happened in driftmark that it just has to be such a staggering sight for this man that has been part of damon's life since the day he was born but you also have to think about you know they are coming in they have their personal story of what what they need from him what they want from him what they expect but there's also this very fundamental question of like is the king well and is he being properly cared for and to go back to this analogy of hospice care that's actually one of your questions every time you're visiting a loved one in a nursing home or in the hospital is like what are they doing are they doing the right things do i need to advocate for this person and you see you know him smelling the milk of the poppy you see uh rainier turn around and say you know we we should talk to the maesters we should do this right they're also Yes, they have their own political machinations, but you you do get the sense that as a daughter and as a brother, certainly later on when he comes and helps lift him up to the throne, that there is a care, if not a love there, for him as a person and an individual. And it's not meant, I don't think, to be in contrast to Allison's care, but it is certainly shown to us first and shown to us quite clearly in a way that I think helps cement them as rootable and also uh, gives some sense as to why his monologue at the end might actually sway them. It, it's so interesting when you bring up that contrast between Rainier and Damon's care versus Allison's because like, I think that's what makes some of these characters more, almost more realistic than some of the characters in Game of Thrones proper, is that there's very few so far that have been all bad or all good. And they're mm -hmm. all very, very slight bits of bad and good. It's not even like these huge swings. Damon's the most questionable now. Circle back to him in a moment. Um, but like Allison, like Rhaenyra says in her speech at the dinner, is loyal and is standing by him even though she was put in this kind of crappy position of having to be married to him having to have children with him um and right now having to uphold and do what's best for the realm and i do truly think that she is thinking in her mind i need to do what is best for the realm i'm not purely trying to win power in order to have it to only help myself and so she has her own reasons for wanting to take care of him like a different character might say let's just poison him and then we're in charge or let's you know i mean whether or not they're giving him the milk of the poppy 100 percent because he's in pain or if there are some benefits we don't know but with rainier and damon they're there to talk to their father and their brother in part to get something from him that they, that they need, you know, they need his support and it benefits them for him to be alive and being taken care of. Also, they probably also care about him as well. So it's these like little bits of moral gray areas that are so entertaining. Um, and then you've got Damon who does some other crappy stuff, but he, for the most part in this episode with one glaring exception is like, chill dad damon like what is this right he's he's like he's like uh just kind of walking around being like oh let me touch the belly let me uh you know support my kids let me stand up for them at the table um and and i i don't know like i i that was very unexpected for me to see him do that even even the helping the king to his chair i i was kind of surprised that he wasn't 
more snide. It's like all of his horrible um, previous characteristics they just gave to Amond. I I think part of what they're doing there is this notion of once someone is on the right path, then they'll stop doing evil things. And so I think there's like this element of Damon marrying Rhaenyra is both of them are made to be more likable, I think, in this episode post uh, whatever that wedding was. And uh, and I think part of it is like the, the showrunners trying to tell us, yes, this is good. This is the right thing. See, look, Damon's better than he was before. He's not doing all the awful things he used to do. So but but I, I this brings up an interesting point and the, not to jump off it too much mike if you, you had something else to say but i just want to throw one more uh bit of fire onto this fire to see if we can uh, turn it into a giant conflagration is this good writing or not is really my question because i think one of the things about game of thrones is the bad people are bad and the good people are pretty good and there's a little bit of gray area but once a ball starts in motion it is like continuing and picking up steam throughout the course of the series. I think here, like this is an example, and you you mentioned this, Mary, where at the end of last episode, it felt like the battle lines were drawn. We had the greens mm-hmm. over here and the reds over there. And usually in the Game of Thrones, you are ready to go now. And now we have this episode where it's almost like both Allison and Rhaenyra and I think kind of everyone at that age level has almost pulled back and retracted their swords and 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 kind of um uh you know lost some steam almost Mm -hmm. and I guess where I'm stuck is like is that a bait and switch on us as a viewer or is that adding complexity and variety and gray in an interesting way, Mike? Help me figure out, is this good or is this bad? It really comes down to the eye of the beholder in a manner of speaking. <laughs> I mean, I, I certainly have seen some discourse where whatever I, I've posted on social media about House of the Dragon, some people will respond of like, can't get on board with the show. There's nobody likable on it. Which I think is a bit of a broad brush. I think Rhaenyra is probably the one who has maybe the cleanest hands at the end of it all. Like, yes, she has done probably uh, some unsavory things, but definitely the least unsavory things compared to a lot of other characters. And I think there are a lot of, like, supportable elements in what she stands for and what she is trying to do. So I don't necessarily go by the logic like, well, every character is bad all the time. But I can absolutely understand, especially in this day and age, why people aren't necessarily intrigued by watching bad people do bad things. Some people are. Again, like Succession is a great example of that, right? Of just like watching effed up people do effed up things to each other. Sometimes that boy, your perspective is not necessarily desired by people. You want your heroes and your villains. And this is a case where that is not necessarily happening. To that point, I would say it's good writing. Uh, I think whether or not it's it's you know likable writing is much more of a qualitative choice. But I think from a more objective perspective, I think it really is good and honestly more realistic and less tropey writing to have these characters be able to make these very complicated choices and basically on the flip of a dragon coin, sometimes do very good or very bad things, Mary. Yeah, 
I that's been my biggest struggle is actually the the missing pieces on the show. It's the time jumps and it's not it's not I'm not jarred with the different actors. I'm not jarred with that. It's the desire to see things were not even even before they did the major jumps uh between episodes three and four like in episode three Rhaenyra and Allison were like we're not cool we're not talking we're on the hunt we're not chill episode four they had rekindled a little bit it seemed like they had had some good talks and they were kind of supporting each other a little bit again and then you kind of jump back and you jump back forward and you jump back and when they did the first episode of the time jump when Rainier is giving birth and Al- and walking up to Allison it's like wow they are not on the same page how did we get this far apart again and then they kind of came back and had some respect then they had the whole eye situation and then this episode I'm like whoa they're having like calm conversations they even said nice things about each other and seemed like toward the end of the dinner we'll get to we're we're gonna be on the same page again for a little while and i'm trying to decide whether or not i think that's realistic i i I think it's more realistic than someone just making one bad decision and going full evil I think it's probably more realistic that people take a step away. I'm sure everyone here has like had an argument or done something crappy and then stepped away. And the next day went like, man, I really should apologize for that. I should get over that. Um, and, and maybe time and distance makes them uh, reminisce about the simpler times. So I'm okay with that. But I do find myself going, ah, I want to know. I want to know what happened in those years or days or months. Oh, yeah. The definitely, definitely the biggest point against the the writing is even outside of the characters is just, yeah, the, the refusal to not even flash back to intervening events, even as place setters to get us. It's, it's, it's sort of explaining away like, and this happened and this happened when those are probably also equally, if not more important character building and, moments. And I'm so confused on the pace of the show because I'm like, is this a one season thing? I mean, I don't think so. I think they've announced that they're going to do a second season they announced for a second i don't know if it was intended to be written for a season thing initially so i guess we'll find out you know in a few weeks if it ends succinctly or not right well this is this is like my hot take that i didn't say at the start uh in terms of how i've enjoyed this season but to me this feels like three seasons of game of thrones that they're rushing into one season Mm. and i I want each one of these time jumps should have been a start of a new season like, I know that the pacing was slow in a couple of the early episodes, but I feel like they could have filled, like, this this scene, this awkward family dinner party should have been episode one of season three, right? This should have been, and then the king dies, and then season three as us seeing the implications of that. But I think what we're feeling is these huge swings in motivation, in relationship, they're, they're rushed, and I I get this feeling of a show that is so desperate to prove its legitimacy they have to get to the fight they have to get to the dragons they have to get to the all-out war when in fact what made to me the original game of thrones especially those early seasons so good is they let the stew simmer and we're not doing that yeah i i go back and forth though because part of me says is there enough there there to make 10 episode seasons about each one of these maybe i think you'd have to write a lot more content just based on what it's based on and we've seen that doing that also doesn't always pan out when you're filling in for lack of content um so i don't know but i like i'm in some ways i'm more intrigued by the fact that 
they have these gaps because, uh, Mike, I don't know if you've ever felt this way. You know, you mentioned fan fiction earlier, but you read enough fan fiction, you start to realize when you watch, especially TV shows, like it sometimes feels like they they put things in knowing they put gaps knowing that people will then go and write a fan fiction about it, about what fills that gap or what changes something. So I can already see the fan fiction being written of like, this is the story between episodes four and five where Rhaenyra and Alicent had this fight and then they went on, you know, and I, I can see that there. So I'm, I'm okay with it in some situations, but I definitely think like that, if you watched Game of Thrones, and I'm not going to get into any spoilers, but you know potentially where some areas might be leading to. And is that a end of season one thing? Is that a season two thing? Like, I'm I'm very curious to know where they're trying to get the end of this season because we've only got a couple episodes left. And it seems, uh, like Troy said, that we took a massive step back in part of this episode only to kind of then at the end get back to where we were at the beginning. Now... Whether consciously or unconsciously, uh, we sort of stopped down in a lot of this talk. Yeah, sorry. Get to a very <laughs> uh, graphic scene, I would say, in terms of content. This is where I will, again, put out a content warning specifically when it comes to sexual assault, sexual violence, and rape. Uh, please skip ahead if you do not wish to visit that topic. Completely understandable. But yeah, we referred to it beforehand. Uh, Allison has to refer to a matter that happened in Aegon's chambers where he is. she has to talk to this really just absolutely like overwhelmed understandably so chambermaid by the name of diana who got raped by aegon that is that is the implication that is put in there and man talk about like reaching through to whatever year this is and pulling us into 2022 right when allison and again my read is that i do feel like as we mentioned before like she did truly feel sympathetic you could see in my opinion the tears in her eyes as you know she is regarding exactly what happened trying to digest the the horrors that her son committed but then she sort of brings in the straw man argument of all these things of like oh but was anybody else there it's your word against his he has the support of the realm etc etc so we're going to have to pay you off and yeah to a point you made before troy it is uh an unfortunate shock of reality I will sort of cop what was said about, uh, you know, the the very tragic birthing scene in episode one of, you know, I can understand why they did this as a commentary on today. Do we need it? That will be a discussion for, I'm sure, many other podcasts over the course of this. But it certainly leads Allison to become incensed enough, Mary, to wake her son up, bare butt in the air, and basically say, you are no son of mine. What happened in these last six years? to this scraggly haired kid who's now I don't even know like I can understand the change of actor for Amond because I think the new look goes with his personality but this this guy just has no regard for his own life or rules like he's gonna say I didn't ask for this in this position but I just feel like if you're being raised by Alicent. How, I don't know, how absent is she from the raising process to make you end up like this? Because you would think that he would have at least some regard for 
decorum and rules and decency and not being a rapist. Mary, the first time we saw him, he was jerking out out the window. Yeah, and I was confused then, too. I was like, wait, how did we get here? I mean, like, is this just... Well, you step up, you take off your pants. You know, and, oh my gosh, Mike. And and then then, uh, in this... In this scene, this scene, uh, Helena is going to come in, and she's going to mention the children. Do they have children too? The two of them. I mean, talk about a niece and her uncle. Whew. Yeah, I know that he's married, right? Because uh, Allison makes mention of like your wife, and then Helena's going to give her very fun speech later. I'm like, marriage is fine. He'll ignore you until he's drunk. Okay, I'm just going to I'm going to give you my take. I think the casting on this was all wrong. He did not look like the same he, yeah, kid. Yeah, not at all. He also didn't look old enough. Like he still looked like he was a little 13ish or like 14ish here when I think he's supposed to be kind of in the like 17 to 21 range. And and I also you you said earlier Mary that there's like there's no real like out and out bad characters. I think this is like they're trying to make him just a very simple, plain, out-and-out bad character. There's nothing redeemable about him that I can tell. There's nothing rootable for him. Like, why are we... Unless I'm missing something, like, you know, uh, Allison's... Allison is at least redeemable or understandable in some way. But are we really meant to root for her and her line that this guy ends up on the Iron Throne? That doesn't feel right to me. I mean, at least at least the younger one has a cool eye patch, right? <laughs> I mean, top tier eye patch, but like, I don't know. This just this just was a total miss for me, and I really didn't like this. Um, I didn't like having this as a part of the story. Um, I don't think it told me anything other than he's like a really bad guy, which we kind of already knew a little bit. So I don't know. I, well- I I'm struggling here. I think the end goal is going to be this idea of do we give the throne to someone who maybe technically have more Targaryen blood and be more legitimate, but is a horrible, horrible person and would be a terrible ruler, or maybe the well-adjusted strong kid who is not <laughs> not uh, necessarily uh, pure of blood, but is pure of heart. So I think that might be leading towards it. I I agree. I think the casting was very a bizarre choice here. I think the idea was probably if I had to guess, like we need to cast someone who just looks like they do not care about their position and the fact that they might be ruling their living in this family, but don't feel a part of it. Um, As opposed to Eamon, who I think is like fully embodying the like, I'm training, I'm spry, I'm cocky. and, And like he's, I think they're, evil in different ways but they both seem like bad bad people but at least one is kind of like but i'm gonna rule or you know i'm, I'm prepared for that but yeah it's interesting it's it's almost like the swapping of roles that usually come with first and second sons which is a huge theme of this show in particular it even gets name dropped right when viserys calls vaymond a second son mm-hmm. that usually the first son right is usually the one that has to be prepared to rule and so they're the ones that have to be a bit more by the books a bit more straight laced your second sons, your Damons, for example, can just be freewheeling, do whatever they want. Your Laris Strongs is another example of this, right? Like, uh, yeah, nobody really cares about me. I'm not really in line unless like a couple people die in front of me. So I can be footloose and fancy free in a manner of speaking. That almost seems to be swapped from this perspective. It might just be their general temperaments. Again, when we met Aegon before, 
he certainly had that lackadaisical attitude. Perhaps it's because of this idea, right? That again, technically up until this point, he was not in line to inherit. It was always Rhaenyra. And so he's just like, yeah, I get to, I'm the, I'm the, the daughter of the queen, but like, I don't need to do jack shit. Great. I'll do whatever the hell I want. Whereas Aemond, I think, was always sort of the black sheep of the family and certainly found other types of interest. There's a non-zero chance he's pulling like a Kyburn and has like bodies in his basement, Jeffrey Dahmer style, just because of how creepy that guy became. But again, it's led Aegon to do some incredibly unsavory things that I think are also like big demonstrations of power as well, right? This idea of like, oh, I can do whatever I want, touch whoever I want, because I'm, I'm, you know... I'm the the dog, the print the son of the queen and she's not going to come after me. I I do think this scene with Allison to me is much more about Allison than it is about Aegon as as a character and maybe I'm just over-indexing on her as the main character. But what I am hopeful for is some scene in the future that really is a much deeper callback to the conversation Allison had with Otto in the rain where he truly reveals the kind of existential stakes of this issue and i don't know that um i don't know that like part of the lackadaisical attitude that Aegon has is that i don't know that he internalizes the stakes of that right i don't think that he is seeing like no this is your life and your death and so will there come a moment where that is conveyed to him in a way that he fully hears and understands that uh and and what if anything does that change I'd be interested by that. So let's get Allison moving on uh, after her hand is nice and warm from a nice slap to her son's face, deservedly so. Uh, she is then going to turn her hand and talk with Rhaenyra and Damon Again, assumingly for the first time since the incident went down in Driftmark, uh, to the point where it does that. I really like the, the, the camera choice, right, to focus in on the scar that was left from Allison slashing Rhaenyra as she, like, covers it up almost out of caution and i mean you could cut the tension with a knife like allison once did six years ago right where uh Rhaenyra just sort of tightly muses what can either of us know of ruling a kingdom and basically implies explicitly in a manner of speaking okay you essentially are keeping the king abated by this medicine in order for you and otto to do essentially what you want and allison says Hmm, that's interesting. Okay, I'm going to file that back in my head because uh, actually, at the end of the day, me and my dad are going to be the judge, jury, and executioner tomorrow, Mary, as to whether or not your son's stake in the Driftmark throne still holds. Yeah, and obviously the the question also of whether or not your son's stake in the Driftmark throne also translates up to the throne proper, uh, the Iron Throne. I think this scene was interesting. I think that Allison definitely does have some amount of her that does say, you know, like, you don't know how much pain he's in. Like, we we truly can't bear to see him like that. Someone who's been by his side for all these years. I think that she probably does share that thought. Um, but, and, and this is where, to Troy's point, like, I just wish we had a little bit more auto, like one conversation with Allison and Otto to know how schemy is any of this, or is this just more sort of happy happenstance that falls into the high towers plates, right? Of like, uh, Ooh, well, this isn't a great scenario, yeah. but we can better. He's asleep at the wheel. We could just reach over and turn it a little. Yeah. 
so oh, yada yada through a couple of, of small scenes here the boys jake and uh jason luke walk through the courtyard we get a look at the new aemon who again looks menacing af especially looking mm -hmm. at like oh here's the boy who took my eye okay i'm gonna file that away for later personally i am glad that rhaenyra is going to attempt to send these kids back to dragonstone as soon as possible because oh, yeah. uh otherwise be and, toast. and also poor joffrey being name dropped like uh, i fear for that child as well i know i said that like oh good the chill we don't need to worry about the children now I think we still might need to. Uh, Vaymond is going to arrive. It's going to make his pitch right to Allison and Otto. Would you really want a child commanding the greatest fleet in Westeros? And if you happen to pick me, you have the loyalty of myself and Driftmark forevermore. I want to skip through these because I want to get to, in my opinion, I think that the sight of Viserys was like the first thing that really hooked me into this episode. But for me, the scene that really got me going, uh, that really just spent me through the excellence of the rest of this episode is sort of like the long-awaited sequel to the scene near the beginning of the series between Rhaenyra mm -hmm. and Rhaenys back in episode two, right? Where she is consulting her about this idea of possibly sitting on the Iron Throne, saying, like, it's essentially a dream. There will be a male heir that will eventually supplant you. It happened to me. It will happen to you. And now she comes to her a little bit older, a little wiser, uh, with a deal. Now, there is a one portion of time here where essentially we have Rhaenyra, Renice, and Reyna all yeah. in the Weirwood together. I am very glad for Verisimilitude's sake that they said, we're not going to do an Asha Yara thing uh, and like change up the names to not confuse people, but like a smidge would have helped. I'll be completely honest because these names all sound incredibly similar. I had to write it down. I really did in my notes. I was like, okay, Renice, Renice. I've been watching the show. I watched five episodes last week, right? Like, I should have this on lock. And yet, I'm like, man, that's a lot of R's and H's. And like, the scrabble of this House of Dragons is just a bit too much. But okay, names aside, you are absolutely right that this scene is an excellent callback. And I think, if nothing else, like, to me, this cements the Princess Renice as. I think my favorite character in the series mm. and, and in, in the season, because she is so steadfast in terms of her, uh, her, her read. She's right. Like, uh, at least I think her assessment of things back in, I guess it was episode one, um, has in many ways proven to be true that now in this conversation, she is it, almost no different from she how she was in episode one and yet look at how Rhaenyra is now right v vastly I think changed in her awareness and maturity of the stakes of the world and in some ways the two of them look more like a facsimile of each other than of the foils that they were back at the start of the season so to me that that almost cements Rhaenys is like yep you got this right like this is the game that is being played and uh we'll see if it works out well for you but so far i think rhaenyra has come more to her side than anything i wish the two of them could just get on the same page because they i mean they really they do by they the end do. of the episode yeah do. but i i wonder how long that's gonna last like i i think from the beginning i felt like they should be supporting each other because it's like, hey, this thing happened to you. It doesn't have to happen to me. And with your support, we can try to help you in the future. Like I, I, 
I almost feel like Rainier should have said, here's the deal. You support the fact that my son will be the new Driftmark King, will do the whole marriage of the kids situation. But then also, you can still sit the throne until he comes of age or until he marries or until he has whatever, like some sort of stipulation where you still get some power in your, you know, married house as well. Um, but I, yeah, I agree. I agree, Troy. Uh, she's one of my favorite ca- characters, uh, Renice. And um, I, I love, I love any of the scenes where they're in that, in that uh, God's wood by that tree, because it's just such great background. And you can tell that Rhaenyra uses it for support. Allison uses it for support. And, and uh, it seems like Renice also does. That's kind of their place of comfort in the castle. It's good for the for shade as well, both uh, literal and throwing it. I, I just really enjoyed it because, yeah, you, you give a really great analysis, Troy, that the first conversation they had, which was not in the gods, but certainly nearby in episode two, was essentially Renice being like, this is how the game is played. And now Rhaenyra, sort of like what Autumn uses to Allison in the previous episode, right, of like, okay, you kind of get what's going on now. You understand what you need to do. Because, yeah, as mentioned, Rhaenyra is offering sort of a Brady Brides-esque double wedding situation, right? That the twins, Lena and uh, Reyna, are going to marry Luke and Jace. Uh, That would then, you know, still put Luke in charge of the Driftmark throne, but it would still exist within, you know, the family, you know, whatever, whichever twin that he marries is going to be the next to inherit it. I also, to your point, Mary, do wonder if there is a little bit of like a caveat of, yeah, people don't approve of a child commanding the troops. Maybe like you could be the queen consort for mm-hmm. a little bit unless like he he comes to be of a comfortable enough age, uh, because that was also the thing as well, right? Was like, Vayman came in basically be like, you shouldn't be sitting on the throne. She's like, oh, if I had a dragon every time that was said, uh, but she said, you know, I'm sitting here because my husband is gone. And so, yeah, I, I do think that maybe one of the reasons why she does end up making this decision at the end of the day, though, initially, uh, she is not going to, right? She's going to tell her, oh, that's a generous offer or a desperate one. Tomorrow, the high towers will deal their first blow. We'll talk about it when we get to the actual scene in the court. I, I wonder if there was anything that happened on that day that changed her mind, whether she was just toying with Rhaenyra in this moment, or maybe just a good night's rest. Uh, maybe her own dipping into the milk of the poppy was able to help. But let's get into, again, a- another scene that is really, really well done from performances and actually, I think, brilliantly foreshadows how the episode is going to end, right? Because we don't realize it. And Viserys himself isn't going to realize it because he believes this very conversation is going to pick up later that night when he's talking to Alicent instead. And this is such good writing down to him calling Rhaenyra Alicent, uh, which is a great transition from last episode where he called Alicent Emma, right? Just shows how not only he's not completely all there, but like how things have shifted in his time. And again, a, a brilliant, in my opinion, way to drop that. He is uh, mixing up identities and will think Alicent is Rhaenyra later on, uh, which prompts what he does. And so, you know, Rhaenyra is going to essentially plead with Viserys at this point, now that she has sort of been rebuked by Renice at the moment. And God, Emma Darcy is just so freaking good in this role. I just love their confession. I thought I wanted it, but the burden is a heavy one. 
it's too heavy. And it's such a really fantastic culmination of this arc. Now it still has a long way to go, but so far of like her not wanting this in the first place, go back to her in that Godswood talking about flying off on a dragon, eating cake, doing what she wants to do, being that Aegon in a manner of speaking. And then, you know, she's been saddled with this and everything that has happened in her life from her marriage to the affairs to everything that's befell them over the past decades has come from the fact that she has been the heir apparent. And it's something that she doesn't necessarily want right now. And then Viserys has this rare moment of lucidity where he looks at her and calls her his only child, which woof, woof. <laughs> big woof, given, you know, the fact that he does have literal other biological children. But just watching Emma Darcy, like, weep over, you know, Viserys, who, again, is not necessarily gone yet, but you can see, Mary, that this is someone who is really at the end of their rope, thinking that they're going to wake up tomorrow and essentially have their life absolutely demolished. And it's not necessarily coming to him in the way that her and Damon were initially in that scene that we spoke about previously. It's more so just sort of like uh, cathartic, I think, and her getting out of some of these emotions that have been building up inside of her. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think it really also throws back to the first couple episodes and at the point when he named her heir, yeah, he had a couple festering wounds, a couple scabs, but at that point in time, they probably thought Rhaenyra will grow up, she'll get married, I will get old, pass the crown to her nicely, everybody happy, the end. And they couldn't have foreseen the fact that, no, you're going to deteriorate to the to point where I really, really need your support politically, and it's going to be very difficult to get it. So uh, I thought this was a really, really touching scene. Um, I thought it was a really pivotal scene, of course, how it's going to tie into the last scene. But um, just seeing Rhaenyra, who is usually in public so, you know, even when she's got a knife uh, to her throat, like so composed and mm -hmm. sort of stone-faced and her and Allison both do a great job of that and I think that's why a lot of viewers are like there's no joy there's no comic relief which has been an argument I made too but the it's because of these stakes that they're all just like I need to put on my I'm in court this is my mask uh this is who I am and to see her be able to actually break it uh for probably the first time in a really long time has w was so um, I don't, I don't know if moving is the right word, but that, that was sort of how I was feeling in that scene. What do you think, Troy? Yeah, I, I think if there was one scene in this episode I'd like to go back and watch again, it would be this one. I think both for the performances, but also to really... I, I'd love to kind of reassess now, seeing how it's all played out, um, what the kind of inner thoughts of, of these characters were. And and Mike, you, you got that quote of, I thought I wanted it, the, the burden is heavy. The, the line I wrote down was also right before that, which was her saying, by naming me heir, you have divided the realm. Mm. Like, what, what a thing to say out loud. What a notion to voice. That not only is it, you know, this is my, this is or isn't my right, I can or can't do that, I want it or don't want it. But she is naming a deeply uncomfortable truth that she does not have an answer for. Now, I, as a viewer, am more interested to learn, like, 
how is the realm actually divided? Because we really aren't getting out of King's mm-hmm. Landing or Dragonstone or Driftmark that much. Like the, those are really the only places that we're seeing. Um, so is is the realm truly divided or is it just the family that's divided? But I, I think there is there there are two truths occurring here there is the the hail mary uh, forgive me of her trying at the last second to win over tomorrow because she knows that this is going to go south which ultimately proves to be effective and then there is this other which is this is the only time and i think the last time that she is alone with her father yeah even the scene uh with her husband he's there right so this is really, uh, theoretically, a king and his heir in the last moment to pass on the truth and what needs to be said. And I do think there's something brilliant about, like, she asks about the prophecy, right? She needs to know. She wants to know. Is it true? Do you believe it? Like, I don't know. There's, there's, so, there, like, there's so much good meat there, Mike. Uh, yeah. I, I want to definitely watch that scene again. Yeah, I, I you think you bring up a really great point that again, this was one of the core relationships of the core four of House of the Dragon, and it's gotten severed by the end of this, which is pretty wild to think about. Uh, I know this is a prequel to a series that has Ned Stark, the main character, ostensibly losing his head in the penultimate episode, but uh, to have it happen in the anti-penultimate episode, despite the fact that he was literally a bag of bones by the end of this, I- I'm still quite surprised by it because, yeah, you-, you get these moments of closure, but not at the same time, right? Where it just seems like they're doing one final check of like, hey, remember the prophecy, remember what you're supposed to do, and Rhaenyra asking for essentially one last favor from him. Uh, and of course, as he's been doing the past seven episodes, Viserys is going to come through. He's going to uh, come through those doors as we see the next day when the court is in session, the honorable, perhaps dishonorable Otto Hightower is sitting on the Iron Throne. People start making their pitches. Rhaenyra does not necessarily, uh, probably has not been inside a lot of uh, courthouses, considering that uh, objections are certainly called for talking out of turn uh, during the opening arguments. Uh, but Oh, it's okay. She she pissed off the judge the day beforehand, so yeah, exactly. it really the, didn't matter. The odds have not been more stacked against her favor, but here comes the surprise witness in a manner of speaking as the doors open. It literally and- was like Legally Blonde, where like someone <laughs> comes crashing through the doors. I guess maybe there's probably a better reference. My I son make. could not get a perm because he is true <laughs> Valerian blood. But yeah, our surprise witness, your grace, the king. Uh, and it's it's very well done, right? That tension the silence of everyone bowing their heads, the surprise looks on Otto and Allison's faces, but like also the fact that he is trying to assume this throne that doesn't fit for so many reasons, just from a physical perspective, right? Like the grandiose nature of this, his crown falls off his head as he ascends the stairs. He says, nobody help me, yet here his brother is having to help him in his chair. He sits there for all of like 10 minutes before he has to get taken away Mary, it's it's so interesting to see Viserys back in episode one where, yeah, he might have gotten poked and prodded, but like still looked like confident in that chair versus just a husk of a person eking out what's going to be his last decree. Yeah, uh, 
what I liked was the juxtaposition between his physical versus the things he was saying, because most speeches we've gotten from him, including the one we're going to get at dinner after this, are very much, why can't we just all get along, keep the family together? And this one was probably the most like kingly that I've seen so far. You know, the, hey, uh, I must admit, I'm a little bit confused. I don't understand why petitions are being made over succession when we all bowed down to Rhaenyra and uh, we all have agreed that her kids are completely legit. Uh, The only person who might offer insight is Rhaenys. And I think to bring up your earlier point of what was it in that night's sleep that made her change her mind, I think most people not Vaymond, but most other people are smart enough to say no matter what shape he's in, this is the king sitting the Iron Throne and I know what I need to say in order to please him. I'm going to stick to the party line and I'm going to say, of course it's going to pass to what my you know husband wanted, which also is the truth in this matter. That is what Corliss wanted and Rhaenys knows that. And uh, yeah, not everyone is smart, and I would say Vaymond, and then Aegon and Aemon are the the three in this episode who don't either don't care or don't seem to get what is on the line. And I think that's the most confusing part. I know it's jumping ahead, but what you were saying earlier about like why why they don't realize the stakes. It's like you just saw what happened to Vaymond, which I'll uh, I'll let y'all talk about because I set that up for you. <laughs> I, I think, look, uh, dagger to my eye, I do think that Princess Rhaenys had a different plan coming yeah. into that before Come the in. king arrived. Live tribal. Yeah. And yep. I, yes, exactly. <laughs> yep. That, that is exactly. Like, someone pulled out an immunity idol and his name was... <laughs> In in this game, the king represents your life, uh, and somehow he is okay. I'm gonna sur- save all the survivor references and spoilers, but yeah, uh, Viserys has had his own immunity idol for the entire season, and now uh, now uh, Rhaenyra gets a gets a little taste of it. Yeah, I I think it's just such an interesting thing, right? Where it turns to Rhaenys, and yeah, it always falls on her. And you think back to that conversation last episode. Right, where Corliss is the one saying blood does not matter in the history books, names do, and Renice is the one being like, Yeah, but like those are clearly not Lenor's children. This is someone who believes she lost both of her children within essentially days of each other. The tragedy that she's lived with, she's gonna vocalize this later, right? Like almost bemusingly, of uh, the seven has visited me so many times, I don't think he gives a shit about whether or not I close or open my eyes, essentially. F tradition, I've had too many people die. Uh, over the course of my lifetime that you think for a second okay so then she will do this but yeah like you said it's very much going with the king's rule at the end of the day plus she gets something nice out of it as she mentions right she essentially confirms to Rhaenyra oh and don't forget we're going through with that bargain that yeah, you I've made said it as now well. in front of everyone so it must happen now and so to that point with Vayman when you talk about saying it in front of everybody this is vocalized in the the after the episode thing He's an incredibly proud man. And I think this is uh, this is him Frank Grimesing a bit, in my opinion, from The Simpsons, where he's like, I feel like I've taken crazy pills. Everyone's gone loco. I know the truth. We all know the truth. Nobody's going to say it. What's going on here? And I think he also sort of knows, like, he's going for broke. But also, what does 
he have to lose in a manner of speaking besides half of his head? Uh, you know, he just lost the only position of power he was ever going to get as a second son. And so he really goes off the edge here. And I mean, I will say the sight of it was not something that I loved, but I loved Damon doing it because something that I feel like was incredibly subtle throughout this season is the Damon Vaymond stuff. It's not just relations and name, but like these two guys cannot stand each other. From back during the crab feeder stuff, Vayman was one of the first guys, right, to be like, Damon can't lead our forces. Nobody's inspired by him. We have to displace him. What's he doing around here just because he has a dragon? Last episode, Vayman was the one to give the uh, eulogy at Lena's funeral, and Damon laughed during the funeral. So even here, like, he's, you know, he's going to smirk later on when, when Vayman is toasted to. So, Mary, I really do like this, this runner coming to a conclusion of Damon just taking him out behind his back in what I will say may be one of the most gruesome deaths I have ever seen in Westerosi history. Yeah, it was gross. It was gross. Um, I think that this also served another purpose. Uh, I may not be a dragon girl, but um, I've been on the uh, Rhaenyra ship TikToks. I've seen seen what's happening there. Um, you know, there's all those the, there's all the strong ones. Uh, early on, there were some Kristen Cole ones that got weird after mm. a while. Uh, and of course, from the beginning, there have been Damon ones, and I think the Damon stepping up to slice the head off the, the 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 sea creature here while he's uh calling Rhaenyra a whore i think some people are going to be like yeah protect your girl so i see that being tiktoked probably i mean is it is it bad for me to be one of those people like <laughs> yeah, yeah go for I, it <laughs> i look at it and i'm like uh okay this man just besmirched mm-hmm. uh his wife and stepchildren in court and basically foul-mouthed the king my brother knowing exactly that this is not what the king wanted to hear and yeah like of course what i love is that there is a narrative inevitability to this if you create that circumstance like we've established damon as a bit of a wild card Right. And you've now checked every single box for him to do something wild cardly. And boy, did he do it. Right. And it's like his, this guy was going down one way or another. But the fact that the sword came through and it's Damon standing behind, I immediately was like, yep. Yep. That was it. Damon may not have had follow through in the brothel, but he's got it here when it comes time to swing the sword. Exactly. Again, a little older, a little bit wiser. I have to mention, though. My absolute favorite part of this entire episode, though, there's one, one second scene, one second shot, and it's right as Veyman is saying and delivering the uncomfortable truth, but that is, in fact, truth to the king. And the camera shoots over to Otto Hightower, who just slides behind Allison. (laughs) Go back and watch it. And there's this, and he just like, it's this moment of like, oh, I've been there. You're not going to want to do this. Like, uh, let me just, mm, I'm going to get a little bit of blood on me. Uh, and I, it, it killed me because to me, that was a flashback to the time that Otto delivered an uncomfortable truth to the king 
mm-hmm. and he paid the price for it. So this man knew the hand knew exactly where this was going. And uh, that was a delightful moment. Meanwhile, creepy ass little Amond is just like smiling at the head plopping down onto the floor in front of him. Yeah, I, I I think what's really interesting, and maybe it's because, you know, their names are essentially anagrams of each other, but there's so much Damon and Amond, is there not? Like, this cruel kind of sociopathic streak to him, the vindictiveness, the fact that he is a second son. I do feel like we get some lingering shots throughout this of, like, Amond eyeballing Damon or certainly showing, like, it seems to me, like, impressed with what he was able to pull off. I wonder if that's going to become a thing later on, or if it just shows sort of like the ending sequence of the wire, right? That like these character traits get just get passed on from one generation to another, even though they're not technically related in that way. That it was a, it's a really interesting choice, but yeah, I mean, if we thought the big brouhaha in Driftmark last time was like, Oh my God, this is the wildest thing to happen in mixed company. Nope, this man's getting his face chopped off in half like that one episode of South Park with Britney Spears, his tongue lolling around. It was absolutely wild. My jaw was on the floor and not Much like Bayman's. Yep, exactly. Uh, (laughs) It was was like a sight to be seen. And so then it's going to be followed up, right, with the the, uh, Viserys being like, I want a family dinner. I think we should have just have some time to get together. I will also, I'll give a shout out to Vaymond here because again, like he is telling the truth. That's again, some of the tragedy behind this. Well, that's the thing though, is that like he is trying to- What good is the truth if it gets you dead? Well, yeah, of course. But he he is, you know, sticking up for his honor, right? He says, you may run your house as you see fit, but you will not decide the future of mine. It certainly is like something that Corliss bemused in the early episodes of the season, right? Of like, you are, I thought that House Valerian, House Targaryen would be hand in hand as these high Valerian families, but you're making decisions that obscure and change a lot of the things that my family is doing. And so he's speaking as like the last vestiges, in my opinion, of that house, now that Corliss is gone, that hand promptly gets chopped off. Uh, and I think, I think Will Johnson in particular does a really fun time with like the big exasperated monologue of him bellowing bastards and everything knowing that, you know, He's going to get a sword through the face very, very soon. It's also one of those things where even if you haven't read the source material, if you've seen Game of Thrones, you'll notice uh, not a whole lot of Valerians talked about. So, <laughs> yeah, we, something we, must we have happened. That's not gonna, <laughs> no, they all um, sailed off to the east. That's all it was. Uh-huh. I didn't yeah, remember sure. seeing those uh, locks in uh, in oh. Game of Thrones. Do you think? Do you think it was that Damon was just gonna do what happened last time and cut off Vaymon's hair like he did with Lenor's, and he just made <laughs> it a bit too far south and cut off his head instead? Yeah, I don't think so. I think uh, Damon, uh, if there was a whoops there, it was uh, an ironic whoops. All right, well, let's gather around to the presumptive Olive Garden, because when you're here, you're family. Wait, can, uh, can I just, I know I know we've gone for a bit here, but can I just, like, take one pause and just say, like, did we really need the scene of the sisters trying to sew him back, like, Humpty Dumpty, Vaynor, like, by, like Vayman back together? Like, I, it was a great moment for Princess Rainey's. It was a wonderful moment for her, but, like, I did not need to see more of, it, like, this man's head. Uh, I don't know. I just... he, he kind of looks like Terrence and Philip. <laughs> <Just like, laughs> <laughs> he become Canadian. Is that yeah. where he gets sent to the north? 
Exactly. Soldier's Canadian Thanksgiving now. He sits around his own family table. Uh, okay, okay. Now we can talk about the awkward family dinner party. Yes, let's get to it. Again, speaking of familial holidays here. Though, again, like, it, it's, it starts awkward, turns heartwarming, then becomes awkward again, right? As all good family gatherings do. Let's Let's start here, I think, with the Viserys speech. Because, again, this is going to be the last... I'd say semi-public statement he makes. And again, I feel like this episode is so emblematic of his character where this entire time he has not taken a side, right? If he has taken a side, it's for the status quo. It's to retain down this path of this dream he had to make sure the realm does not fall into the hands of what of whatever may be coming from the North. But I do think this episode embodied the one rule that he does keep in mind, right? Which is to your point, Mary, family comes first. Sometimes literally in the case of Damon and Rhaenyra. Ah, um, but... ah Mike! <laughs> this, this, I, this idea of like, I mean, he, he, you know, does the Peter Griffin quoting the title, right? Of like, uh, you know, the crown cannot stand strong while the house of the dragon remains divided. He is the person trying to bring quote-unquote sense and normalcy here by bringing together these warring factions, the blacks and the greens, to, to mix together and say, essentially, please, for my sake. And it really was a, a sort of a wake-up moment for me, in addition to him, thanks to the lack of the milk of the poppy, of him really vocalizing that's all he's ever wanted at the end of the day. Whether it be a realm, whether it be a family, Mary, he is all about unity. Unity. I was going to say, I wanted to throw the Boston Rob quote to you. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, I did get a little bit like, oh, come on, man. Like the, with the whole, if you don't want to do it for the sake of the crown, for the sake of this old man who loves you dearly, like maybe that hit home with Allison and Rhaenyra and maybe Damon, but for everyone else, all these little kids, they're like, Ugh, do we have to look at grandpa slash dad anymore? Like, ooh, he looks, he took his Phantom of the Opera mask off and now he's giving us the hollow eye. Yeah, I, I just feel like it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'm not sure how well that was landing. I think it did land for Rhaenyra and for Allison for sure, because his speech of unity is going to be met with lots of toasts all around. Um, and, and I think the one Rhaenyra gives Allison in particular that kind of starts everything off is once again, her trying to like put, put some, put some good faith forward and try, like, I think if you're, if you're Allison truly believing that Rhaenyra wants to murder your kids at that point, like when she's this, like, again, I tried to marry our kids and now I'm saying like props to you. Like, can we just please refrain from the bloodshed and the death um, for a second. And Allison's going to get on board with that, at least in this time period, in this time. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, if anyone was watching this and thought this was going to be some sort of like happy ending, once the kids get up to dance, I don't know. Um, I, I think the, the one, the one big strike I would give against Viserys here though, is Mike, you said that he's not picking a side. He keeps giving these speeches and he's like, Props to Rhaenyra, props to her sons, props to the Lena's kids and their marriages. And by the way, these kids seem like really happy about their deals. They keep like winking at each other and be like, yeah, we're going to get married. It's going to be great. Um, 
maybe shout out your own kids as well. Like maybe also give them some props because it seemed a little bit one-sided there. Yeah, Troy, is it a sad thing that Phantom of the Opera is tragically closing in January? Because I think they could have really now forced them to step up their makeup considering what happened to Viserys when he pulled off the mask. Yeah, I don't know. I heard a rumor that the only reason King Viserys died is that Andrew Lloyd Webber wanted a different royalty structure to bring a new <laughs> Viserys to the I throne. need more royalties. Yeah, exactly. No, that's that's the goal. Is uh, we Why have one royal when you can have all the royalties? uh look this i thought it was a fascinating speech it felt very shakespearean in a way uh, very king lear yeah yeah and you know there was also something about you know i talked about how earlier in the season or, or really in game of thrones uh, as an entirety there's this notion of the ball is being set in motion and it will not be stopped. It's only going to gain steam. I actually think this conversation or, or this scene is one instance where the momentum slowed a bit. And I think it's also meant to show us the gravity that this King has. He is not the great King of all time. He is not uh, the conqueror uh, in many ways. We see earlier in this episode he the throne out outshines him and outsizes him uh physically and and metaphorically in a lot of ways however in this one instance he was able to get what he wanted he was able to get his family to stop fighting at least until he left the room and i had a moment where i wondered are they just humoring the old man are we just doing this for grandpa but there seemed to be, at least between Allison and Rhaenyra, at least at that level, uh, uh, some sort of reconciliation. But at this point, yeah. the die is cast, and it really does not matter. The ball may have slowed slightly, but it has not stopped. Yeah, but what, what I really liked about that, though, is the fact that it did at least seem like that for a moment. But, of course, we all know this, right? Like... We're all sitting there. I was Puya was texting me as he was watching the episode, and he's like, "Someone's gonna die at this table." It's like not necessarily that a friendship does die in a manner of speaking, uh, but at the moment, it does seem like courtesies are exchanged. Again, I do take Rhaenyra and Allison at face value, and to a point that we made earlier, this to me is more realistic than like I'll hold a grudge until the day I die. I know for me, there are a lot of friends I have become estranged from that I would just love to like sit down have a conversation with be like okay we were both young assholes now that we're much more mature like let's let bygones be bygones and remember the times that we actually had that were good together again look back to those first two episodes before allison was announced as the man that was gonna you know, the person that was gonna marry viserys and they were thick as thieves it feels like you know they were almost making the argument to each other of like how could we erase those years and years of friendship by everything that went down and it was simultaneously like refreshing, but also gutting, even without knowing how the show and the and the episode ends, knowing that that was going to be taken away at some point, whether it was like due to the children fighting or what Allison is going to later find out. I really enjoy this. It's the calm before the storm. Uh, and I think from a pacing perspective, that does feel almost necessary. And I love that idea of providing us with a, a small glimmer of hope, which is so rare in Westeros, especially, and giving us the biggest of rug pulls, uh, especially from the characters' perspectives as well, where, again, when Allison walks into Viserys' bedchambers later to, like, wish him good night, 
I think she was totally on board with like uh, getting buddy buddy back with Rhaenyra again. But once she hears what she hears, the the uh, watchtower is ignited in a manner of speaking, Mary. Yeah. Um, l- look, I like I like the pairing of this with the earlier scene and uh, all of that. This was the most. I don't know, like soap opera y drama y part for me is like really the, the crux of the, the battle. We were all good. We were I mean, you knew you knew watching the scene at the dinner table that despite everyone's agreement and uh handshaking and toasts, that something was gonna go bad. And the thing that's bad is gonna be a misunderstanding of some sick guy's mumbling in his half sleep. Like that's the part that I'm annoyed with. Like Oh, I think much in the same way when you watch Survivor and someone makes a decision and you want them to just say like, yeah, I made that all up. If there is a scene next episode where Allison talks with Otto and is like, look, he was mumbling some things. Not quite sure. Here are some snippets. I think we can run with this. Let's just pretend. I think that would be great. But if Allison truly believes that this dying man uttering the words like throne Agen, I believe you must do it and and doesn't believe that she's missing some key context there that's gonna be frustrating yeah I I definitely was like oh here we go okay we've already had the courtroom drama scene with the surprise witness king now we're gonna have the dying declaration scene where you know she's going to be the only witness to this and is now going to have to litigate this over the next episode or two um i'm definitely with you mary like i find this show much more interesting when when they're playing the game hard because they're playing the game hard Mm -hmm. and if she's playing the game hard out of earnest belief that this is what the king wants I mean, I, I, I guess we can root her on, but since we know that it's wrong, it becomes very difficult to support her side. And like for me as a viewer, I just want both sides to be equally rootable in a way uh, mm. to enjoy the fight. I, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed it. I understand it is a little tropey and a little soapy, uh, for lack of a better term. But to me, again, it is so emblematic and i'm not even looking at it from the allison perspective of like she heard aegon sits on the iron throat and oh but it's not that aegon it's actually the other aegon though that as well is actually very shakespearean as well so i think this is a very shakespearean episode of the show yeah. in general i i what really about lo- the third aegon the the child of uh damon and rhaenyra now there's another one well, exactly. And I think that's uh, perhaps people might read that's what he was referring to as well. Uh, because remember, he was introduced to that Aegon and he still believes he's having that conversation. And that's what I really love about this is like the tragic irony. I don't know. I love the fact that in a show that is all about political machinations and wheeling and dealing and what we see Rhaenyra do, right? Like literally sell off her children. Sometimes it just takes the musings of a doddering old man who has his finger on the button to let shit get loose. And I kind of love that wild card element of it as well. It again is such a microcosm of Viserys's character, somebody who again had the best intentions, was doing all of this not only for the sake of his house but also for the sake of the world, according to him. This song of ice and fire that he followed religiously, but he makes mistakes and he does things wrong 
and he gets sloppy. Now, granted, this was a mistake that wasn't made like purposely on his part. Obviously, his mental faculties were not all completely there. But I kind of love this as a final moment for the character that like, dude, you had a good heart. But at the end of the day, you were not the king that Westeros necessarily needed. And this moment kind of shows. Again, not your fault, considering, again, the associations that you were making. But I just really loved, I could understand the qualms about like, okay, now we have to deal with Allison dealing with them and starting an entire war because of a misunderstanding. But, you know, War of the Roses, it's based in history as well. Uh, But I just love it more as a send-off for Viserys, the character that, of course, after he gives this speech, it arguably does the most successful thing we've seen him do on the show. There's always something at the end to get him and make sure he completely screws that all up. Yeah, I mean, that that is why he is not Viserys the Great. That is why he is not the one that they're going to write, you know, these great histories of, uh, you know, we see uh, the reference to Lord Corliss at the beginning of the episode. He's someone who wants the histories to be written uh, about him in a way. And I think Viserys just wants his family to get along. He finally accomplishes that, finally, and then and then undoes it at the end um, with a, like, a death scene that's quite striking and oh, so uh, good so good very very well acted it's difficult to watch but um very well done yeah it's it's so well done between him just muttering like no more to himself which i really think is him like reckoning with himself right just being like go into the light don't do this to yourself anymore you accomplished everything you need to he sheds a tear and says my love and Again, like, it's a sort of surprisingly warm ending, which is odd considering how things go. But, like, Mary, are we assuming that he's crossing over to the other side of the Rainbow Bridge and, like, seeing Emma there? Either that or saying it to the Rhaenyra that he thought he was talking to. Mm. I think it's probably one of those two. Um, it was a great scene. It was very well acted. Um I, I did write in all caps. He finally dies. <laughs> yes, so there is that. Yes. I mean, honestly, if you think about it, six years and this man has a literal hole in his head that was covered up by like bandages and a mask. I am stunned for so many reasons he made it this far. Do they not have more permanent coverings? It's like little loose scraps of fabric or, or like over a, you? They, they could have fashioned a glass eye for him yeah his grandson took the the better uh or his i guess his son took the the better eye patch so you know yeah only one eye patch per family that's right oh my gosh. there's 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 limits here can, uh, can i before we like totally wrap up here just share one more thing that like is just like eating at my brain from yes. uh, uh from that family dinner i think is it helena who's the helena targaryen yeah mm-hmm. who's the, like the uh the sort of ditzy bug loving one yeah. who makes the who makes the speech about marriage is okay uh because he doesn't really pay attention to you and who does the hippity hop with jace later on yeah so like okay nothing throwaway burger speech but she like straight up just like whispers under her breath beware the beast beneath the boards yeah, so let, we can talk about this a bit because I, I think it was talked about in the other podcast this week. So 
I believe there's something called like dragon speak or dragon dreams where there are some people in the Targaryen line that like have prophetic dreams of the future. Again, this is what Viserys is putting forward, right? And you actually clock in a previous episode, I believe episode five when we or six when we first get the time jump that, you know, she they talk about, oh, Aemon will eventually get a, a, a dragon and she says he'll have to close one eye to ride it, yes. uh, which again, prognosticates what's going to happen. So I think it's a good time to to clock it because I don't know if this means something beneath the Red Keep. Does this mean there's a dragon underneath that might come to life? Are we talking about the dragon? But could we already start stockpiling the wildfire down there for a possible use? I don't know. But like when I look ahead to like what might happen here, those little throwaway lines from like Creepy Spider Girl, that's going to stick with me. The fact that uh, we suddenly got like three new dragon eggs thrown onto the board at the beginning of this episode that's going to stick with me. So, you know, I, I think the, the, the implications of the King's death, I think we have set enough things in motion to know the direction that they're heading, but it feels like we just keep throwing more gas onto this fire, or I guess fire onto this fire. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I don't know the beast beneath the boards, the new dragon eggs, like there's some, there's some more shenanigans afoot here, even once we get finality of the King's death. Yeah. And there was, there was one from the previous episode that she said when she was playing with a, a bug, um, it was something about sewing colors. Did, did you, yeah i i felt like i had written it down now i can't find it again but um she's yeah she's made a couple and i'm kind of trying to keep track of them i definitely caught the one about the beast beneath the board so uh very curious to see where that goes she's been a fascinating character and the one other moment that i was interested about in this episode was a very 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 brief scene where it looked like Damon went to go speak to Masaria. I can't remember her name. Oh yeah, so we have this random lady going to Masaria, which for those of you that forget, this was a uh, as was currently referred to, I believe, in early episodes, Damon's whore. Right. Mm -hmm. This was the right. owner of the brothel who uh, Damon had consorted with, who for a brief portion of time, when he like took his ball and ran to Dragonstone, had lied that she was pregnant, they were going to get married. When they eventually came back to King's Landing, the last time we saw her was after his big night out with Rhaenyra, he woke up drunkenly in her bed, sort of Viserys style, like not even knowing that it was Misaria. And Misaria basically said, like, get out, we're done. So that was the last time we saw her. But we get this scene where this brown haired woman, who I guess I, b I believe is one of the servants. I was think it we saw Talia? Was it the, the named one or is it just someone from the court? I think it's yeah. someone, it's someone that we definitely saw in uh, in the episode at some point, like walking in and giving like one line in a scene. But she basically arrives. Masaria is just sort of like standing there menacingly on the balcony. And then uh, it's going to be like, oh, there's stuff going on in court tonight. It's been quite a night at the castle. Yes, my lady. So like, I'm not sure what that is about either. Okay, um, I'll be honest. I saw a hooded figure, assumed it was Damon, and then How looked down not? and wrote yeah. a note and yep. looked back up and no, the scene was I, over. So I was I like, made never the mind. same <laughs> assumption. And when it, when it cut and it was like some random like woman whose face I definitely didn't recognize, I was like, okay, what and, are we doing here? 
my my only main note on that i'm bringing that up was we had mentioned earlier is there going to be some sort of future conflict between damon and rhaenyra because everything seems like super brady bunch right now and uh random scene with this woman may be the only thing we have so far that could potentially lead to something there question mark I don't know. So the one thing that I can think of, and this is going to be a little spoilery for the promo for next episode, so people feel free to, to skip ahead about a minute if you don't want to talk about it. So someone, I believe it's Otto, says like, oh, there's, oh no, it's Laris, I think, says, you know, there's something you must know. And it cuts to a child with blonde hair who yeah. seems to be in like some part of Flea Bottom. My assumption would be that this is Damon's, you know, bastard child either with Masaria or with someone else from his nights out on flea bottom a la bobby baratheon yeah i did clock Put that, that baby and I was in curious. a rowboat in season, yeah. season three yeah uh i did clock that i was a little uh confused about who i was trying to think of who else that could potentially be um could that be a bastard child of Agans or Amons or any other one of these silver-haired people, we don't know. Guess we'll find out. Yeah, um, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, we'll 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 not spoiler uh, unless we want to any more of the previews for next week. Exactly. I just I just wanted to put that in there though, because I mean, if we're if we're talking about like, oh, what are these random things that are dropped in there? Yeah, they still th- were able to throw that in uh, in the tense character drama as well for you mystery lovers out there. Well, it's no mystery how much uh, I enjoyed this episode. And I think, you know, despite the nitpicks, it seemed like the the two of you also had, you know, some great thoughts to give about what has been a very interesting series so far. Let's go around the horn. uh, If you want to give any final thoughts about either this episode or your thoughts on the series up to this point, and then plug, plug, plug away. Troy, we'll start with you. Okay. Uh, well, final thoughts on this episode would be, huzzah, good news, he's dead. Uh, the king is finally dead. No, that's the wrong musical. We're talking oh, about Phantom right. of the Opera. That's, that's right. Uh, I did look up the lyrics to Music of the Night. Uh, I, I didn't mention at the beginning, but yeah, in my uh, filthy, filthy, casual enjoyment of game of thrones i did partake in the final throner awards and oh, make yeah. quite a yes. few parody songs so i'd i'd have to put some thought into my dj labelle klein uh persona and what pair like there's not a lot light about this series to make funny songs about but uh we definitely it would have been a a phantom of the opera song this week no question um Let's see here. Plug away. Well, if you enjoy spending time with me, most Monday nights, you can watch me play Dungeons and Dragons on Twitch. Uh, I play in a little show called Dragonfly, twitch.tv slash DM Philly, most Monday nights around eight o'clock Eastern time. Uh, Beyond that, uh, looks like we got a new season eventually of Only Murders in the Building. So when that mm. comes back, I will podcast about that. And uh, who knows what else you might see me appear on. I was just a guest on uh, the Mighty Ducks Game Changers podcast mm-hmm. with the great Kevin Mahadeo. So if you're watching season two of the Disney Plus show about kids playing hockey, you can come listen to me about that. Otherwise, uh, follow me on Twitter at DJ Labelle klein that's me 
Amazing. Mary, what do you have going on? And any final thoughts you have about this episode or House of the Dragon so far as a series? Yeah, you know, despite all my nick nitpicks um i'm glad that this show exists and has reinvigorated a lot of people's uh, joy for the world and the characters and uh you know there i don't i don't know what else hbo could have done to get people to want to watch game of thrones again but it seems like a lot of people are re-watching now because of that so i'll probably jump on board with that uh thank you so much for inviting me on mike i've had a lot of fun talking and i know we've gone so late uh, <laughs> at night on this episode but had to get all my thoughts out uh yeah you can Follow me everywhere at Frail Mary on every platform. And um, I, I went to Old Town and studied up to become one of the maesters a couple weeks ago and taught a class uh, on Survivor for the Survivor Academy, which uh, was released to the uh, Rob Has a Podcast main feed. It's normally a patron show. So if you want to check that out uh, from covering weeks one and two of Survivor 43, definitely do that. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of, a lot of, wedding proposals and betrothals in this episode and uh, if you're interested in that sort of thing then uh, you can check out myself and Asia Welch covering what Love is Blind segue. season 3 well segue. you know Love is Blind and Viserys is half blind so it's a fairly yep. close comparison you don't need an eye patch to enjoy this show Love is Blind season 3 coming back in just a week or so <laughs> I had a long time while Troy was talking and to think up my, <laughs> my segue. So thank you if you stuck around to hear that. But yeah, that, that, check that out over on uh, RHAP as well. Amazing. So you can always follow me at a Mike Bloom type. I will give the, uh, the outlook on the forecast for this week because, again, this is only the first house of the dragon podcast you're getting this week coming up in the next day or so. We're going to get our book club podcast with Philly, Taryn and Mari Forth will be back joining those two to give their thoughts on House of the Dragon Episode 8, as well as looking at Fire and Blood to see how does Viserys' death compare to how it was depicted, and what could we look forward to besides spoilery blonde-haired children in promos? We shall see. Of course, Rob and Josh will be doing their typical feedback show later on in the week. Make sure you get your feedback in so they can address it, and then... This weekend, it's going to be Ladies' Night on the Versus Podcast. It's going to be Latanya Starks. Grace is going to be there. Uh, unfortunately, she's not able to obviously join us for this, but she certainly wants to give her thoughts, and so she's joining Latanya there. And we're going to be joined by Gia Worthy as well, uh, one half of our great coverage of Abbott Elementary on post-show recaps. It's going to be there to not only talk about House of the Dragon, but also compare House of the Dragon Episode Eight to Game of Thrones Season 1 episode eight so again we are just getting started for lack of a better term when it comes to house of the dragon coverage but for those of you that stuck through two hours of this thank you again there's a lot of stuff to get into this is a very weighty show both in terms of tone subject material but also every word that feels like it is spoken just feels like there's so much stuff behind it and I am so happy that I had the pleasure to talk with the two of you, not only about this episode, but your thoughts about the series, about the franchise in general. That's very fun. I'm also talking, speaking of fantasy, about The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, which is airing its finale this coming week. Uh, so obviously you two dibble and dabble with fantasy. Have either one of you watched The Rings of Power yet? I am so behind, but desperately want to catch up. I watched... <laughs> 
Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings for the first time a couple of weeks ago. So <laughs> that's where I'm at. Okay. <laughs> okay. Get there. So TBD for, though, it could be an interesting experiment for you if you watch the show having no context as to like, what's a Galadriel? Uh, and yeah. just to figure out, okay, do I, do I enjoy this or not? But very much recommend it. I think it has really just been ramping up and Rich and myself will be ramping down coverage of the finale next week in addition to everything josh and i are doing with heroes on down the hatch and all the other things going on on post show recaps uh coverage of dairy girls the final season uh, of course it's spooky season so we're gonna get some uh discussion of the mike flanagan verse with ariel and latanya starting with the haunting of hill house werewolf by night speaking of spooky stuff just aired on disney plus i think josh and kevin are getting back together to covering that there really is a lid for every pot uh, basically, in post-show recaps. And we hope you're all cooking alongside us, because I think what we're, what we're serving up is something pretty good. What we'll be serving up next time is Grace and myself, and maybe another guest will be joining us to break down the penultimate episode of House of the Dragon. Knowing how penultimate episodes go in Game of Thrones, I'm a little nervous. But we shall see, and we'll be sure to break it all down for you next week. Thank you all again so much for listening. Mary, Troy, thank you both so much for your contributions to this podcast. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.